Masechet Ketubot Daf Memchet. We continue with the list of items that a husband is responsible to provide for his wife. The Tanakama gave a whole bunch, uh, a whole list, and then Rabbi Huda added, Rabbi Huda even the poor person has to provide for his wife at least two flutes and one professional whaler uh, at his wife's wedding to give honor to his wife. Now, Tanakama did not say anything about this, so uh, does he agree? Does he disagree? Let's see. So we can infer that Tanakama does says that a husband is not required to provide for his wife any flutes and any whalers. So let's see, what, what exactly is the case? What is the common custom? Uh, if it's the common custom that everyone does get flutes and whalers, then how come Tanakama says it's not required? This is a basic necessity of respect. Uh, that should be provided for. The husband is is required to pay for the burial expenses, uh, basic, whatever it is, basic burial expenses. If this is how everyone does a funeral, then it should be included. And if they're in some place where this is not the custom to have flutes and whalers, then why does the biuda require it? Nobody's doing this. Uh, so we have a compromise. It could be that there's a difference between their social statuses or their family common customs. So if it's a place where it is his custom to have flutes, but not her custom to have flutes and whalers. Uh, so when there is a difference in the standards of living, between the husband and wife, what is the prevailing rule? Does he have to provide her regarding other things too? When he has to provide her for clo- with, with clothing and food, is at, at what level? Where can she shop? Uh, so, oh, so very good. We actually have a very important general rule that we say, she rises up with him. In other words, if he is, is, uh, comes from a higher social class than she does, then she rises to his level. So if he's, uh, he's used to uh, 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 shopping in expensive stores and eating expensive, uh, re- expensive restaurants, then she has to be treated the same way as him. She rises to his level. And on the other hand, if she is from a higher class than he was, she does not have to go down to his level. Rather, the husband has to provide her what she was used to growing up. So in other words, she gets the benefit of both uh, sides. Uh, she gets the higher of the two, whether it was her family or his family. Now, all that's true when she's alive regarding all the benefits that she deserves while she is alive. But there's an exception. After death, that's not true. After death, a uh, husband has to give her only what her family is used to. So therefore, yeah, if her family is used to having flutes, then he would have to provide it. But now Mishnah is talking about a case where her family does not have, uh, does not usually have flutes, but rather his, but his family does. So therefore, Tanakama says, uh, since they, since she, she she died, he does not have to provide her the higher level of his family, but rather the lower lower level of her family. Rabbi Yudah says this rule that you find, you pick the higher of the two applies both when she's alive and also while she's dead. So since his family always has flutes, he has to provide that for her. 
Amadav Chista, Amadav Ukba, Halacha Kirabiuda. And the final Halacha is, in fact, like Rebiuda, that he would have to provide for her the higher of the two uh, levels, even at uh, even for funeral rites. Okay, another law by Rav Chista in the name of Mor Ukva, that uh, if a man became insane, and so now he's no longer competent to deal with his finances, uh, but he does have financial obligations. So the Betin will step in and take control of his funds. And so they have to act responsibly. Uh, so they can provide sustenance, uh, food and sustenance for his wife. Well, that's an, a basic obligation in the Ketubah. So it's a legal obligation. He's got to pay for his wife. Good. Oh, Banav Notav and his children. He has to provide sustenance to them. And another thing. We're going to see a machloket about what that other thing is. One of the opinions is that it's talking about jewelry, cosmetics, perfume for his wife. So beyond just basic necessities of staying alive, he has to provide uh, cosmetics also for his wife. Okay, that's the law. Amar le Ravina le Ravashe, Maishna mehad tanya. Now Ravina asks Ravashe, hold on, we have a contradictory law. Uh, so what can you explain to me the difference, the tanya? So here we have a case not of a man who became insane, but rather someone who went away on a trip. Um, and uh, he, he, didn't, uh, he didn't come back for a long time. And uh, the wife comes to the court and said, uh, you know, he didn't leave any cash around. Uh, he didn't leave food around, but he has, to, he has an obligation to feed me. And he has property and uh, uh, assets in the town. So she comes to Betin. So Betin says, yes, you're right. He has, a, he has an obligation to feed you. And therefore, the Betin, since in his, in his absence, that's how it's similar. Right? The person who's insane is physically absent, but mentally not around. This guy is mentally sound, but he's physically not around, so he can't make the decision. So the Betin make a responsible decision for him. And they go and uh, take, go into his assets, and they feed and provide all the basic needs for his wife. But they do not take money to pay for the sustenance of his bo- of his sons, his daughters, and not for that other thing. Let's say it's which is cosmetics. So this is interesting. What's the difference between the one who goes insane and the one who goes away on a trip? Uh, that one should be required, and one, uh, one, one, they do take money for their kids and cosmetics, and the one who goes away on a trip, they don't take the money for, they don't feed the kids and pay and have him pay for cosmetics. Amarle Ravashe answers, says, don't you think there's a difference between someone who leaves willingly, that's the one who goes on a trip, and those who go, one, someone who goes not, not knowingly, I mean the one who goes insane. So here's how it works. Um, the, the one who, the person who goes insane, since before when he was sane, he was providing all these things for his wife, for his children, and cosmetics. And so now they went insane. We assume that he would want to provide all these things in the same level as he had been doing before. So therefore, the betin goes ahead and does it at the same level. Whereas the person who goes away on a trip, he knew he was leaving, and so he should have made plans for the basic necessities. So um, he didn't make plans. He didn't leave. He didn't leave 
leave over money. Therefore, we cannot assume that he wants to pay anything more than he actually provided for or that he's legally obligated to. So what are the fundamental basic legal obligations of a man? Well, in the Ketubah, he has to provide food, sustenance, clothing for his wife. So that, the Betin will seize his assets in order to pay for that. But children, surprisingly, is not so. It actually depends on how old the kids are. If they're less, younger than six years old, then yes, the father has an absolute obligation. We can seize his assets in order to provide food for his very young children under six. But um, it's surprising, halacha, if, it's, if they're older than six, then although it's absolutely expected and we would shame any father deadbeat father who doesn't who doesn't feed his children who are above six nevertheless there's no absolute legal obligation um i guess you know six-year-old could you know oliver style fend for himself somehow and beg or, or, or find some way to access communal funds, right? It's not like they're just in a crib that they're going to starve to death. Um, so above six, while there's a basic uh, a human responsibility for a father to provide, but there's no absolute legal responsibility. Therefore, in absence of the father who goes away, and considering that he didn't leave any funds for his uh, eight-year-old kids, therefore, we, the Betin, cannot take his funds. Instead, they'll have to refer the, uh, the kids to the, the, the local uh, charity organization. Also with cosmetics. Cosmetics is above and beyond. And would, um, uh, w would a husband in his absence want his wife to look beautiful? Maybe, maybe not. For the insane, for the insane person, we assume, well, she, he, had, he, he paid for all these things so his wife would look beautiful when he was sane, so we assume that he would continue when we see his assets. When the guy's away on a trip, maybe he doesn't want his wife to look beautiful so the other guys don't look at her. And so therefore, we do not. So this is important. So we see a very basic distinction between absolute legal um, obligation, no matter what, whether he said so or not, we take his assets and other things that are not the uh, basic, not absolute legal obligations, but depending on, dependent on his uh, his decision. Okay, now we finally ask, my what is this other thing that we mentioned? As we said, this is jewelry, cosmetics, perfumes. Rav Yosef Amar Sedaka is talking about charity funds. So in those days, there was a tax uh, that was imposed by the by the rabbis, by the nasi, or the exilarch, on everyone that they had to give a certain amount to the charity, the communal charity organization to help out the, the communal funds. Um, so can we, can the Betin, if the guy went away on a trip or he's insane, can the Betin go and extract money from for this other thing? So according to this opinion, it's tax. So that would mean according to the, uh, if the guy's insane, then we assume he always pay tax. He has to pay the tax. So he would continue to pay the tax. If the guy went away on a trip, then we do not go and take his money. Maybe he's giving the tax uh, from where he is uh, away on a trip. So we can't uh, assume that he wants the tax to be given. All right, so what's the difference between these two, Rav Chista and Rav Yosef? If you say that he uh, would not want to pay for the, uh, his woman's ornaments, um, uh, and so we don't take it from him, all the more so we should assume that he also would not want charity taken from his funds because uh, maybe he's giving it elsewhere uh, but someone who but the other opinion that says the davarachet is sedaka and so we would take sedaka uh, from him 
if he became insane, all the more so we would extract money for the, for, for the jewelry. But also the other guy who went away on a trip, uh, the one who says that we're only talking about tzedakah means, okay, we don't take tzedakah from him. Who knows, maybe he gave it over there. But uh, cosmetics, since he doesn't, he does not, this Tanah does not include cosmetics on the list, we assume that we, the Betin does can extract money for her cosmetics because he would not want his wife to be demeaned even though he's away his one he wants his wife to uh, be happy um, and uh, therefore we do not take the tzedakah but we do take the um, uh, the, the we, we do take money for the cosmetics good so now another statement about um, uh, using funds for the wife's burial. A man went on a trip, and while he was away on a trip, his wife died. So now the, the man has responsibility to provide for his wife's funeral, but he's not around. So the Betin will go into his assets, and they will pay for her, her funeral according to his dignity. Uh, according to his level. So now we wonder, wait a second, why according to his level and not according to her level, right? Didn't we say before that we should follow her level? No, what we mean is also according to his level, uh, meaning whatever is, whichever one is higher, her level or his level, whichever is higher, the Betin can extract money for that, if that includes flutes or whatever it is. So we see that according to Ravuna, he gives a Pasakalacha here that she gets the higher amount both while she's alive and also while she's dead. She gets to uh, enjoy the, uh, the higher uh, level of, um, uh, of living, um, and there, which was the Halacha we said that was the Biuda uh, in the Mishnah that said that. And so that is the, the halacha here as well. So that's why the betin can extract money. And if um, uh, either one of them usually has flutes, then the husband's assets will have to pay for them. Rav Matana teaches that if a man is on his deathbed, and he says, "Listen, I'm about to die, but I'm telling, uh, I'm telling my uh, my uh, inheritors that if, uh, when, if and when my wife dies, imeta, uh, when my wife dies, I don't want her to be buried from my money." Um, so if the husband is alive and his wife dies, then he's obligated to pay for the funeral. That's in the Ketubah. But once the man dies, then all his assets go to his sons or whoever is going to inherit him. And the, uh, the inheritors, the sons, do not have an obligation to bury his, their father's wife. It could be their mother. It could be their stepmother. But they do not have a basic obligation. So therefore, Shaminla, we listen to it. Uh, how will she be buried? Well, when she dies, she will receive a Ketubah payout. Um, uh, that, and it will go, that will go to her. So that from that money... Um, uh, she, uh, so from that money, uh, they can take a sum in order to pay for a funeral rite. So that is a basic law. So therefore, that's true. We listen to him. Now we ask, this is so basic. Why does he, he doesn't even have to say it. What's the difference when he says so? What? Because the property goes to the orphans and the orphans, they can, they don't have an obligation. Even if the 
father on his deathbed says, I don't want my money to pay for the, my wife's funeral, even if he doesn't say so, it would still be the law because his assets, except for the money that will go to pay the ketubah, his assets go to his sons and his sons do not have to pay for their, step, their, their, their mother or stepmother's funeral if they don't want to. So what is Rabbi Rab Matana actually teaching us? Rather, we're going to reword what he taught. A person on his deathbed says when he dies, this is a euphemism, if he means when I die, he doesn't want to say, uh, give himself a curse, even though he is about to die. So when he says, if when I, when I die, do not bury me from my property. I don't want to pay for my own burial. That's what he says. He's so stingy or he wants he doesn't want his kids to have to waste money on his funeral. And so in Shamin law, we do not listen to him. Because he does not have the power, we're not going to allow him to make his sons rich and now put himself as a burden on the community by saying, I'm not going to pay for my funeral. Well, we're not going to just leave him unburied. The, funerals, the funeral society, uh, the communal funds will pay for anyone who cannot afford it. Yeah, so by him uh, uh, saying that this, he's actually um, uh, allowing his sons to, have, to, get, to keep that money and uh, putting a burden on the communal funds. And that is not fair. If he's so poor, fine. But if he has the funds, then we uh, do not pay attention to his directive and we take the money from them and we force the sons to pay for their father's funeral. All right, next Mishnah. So we're trying to figure out exactly when the handoff happens. Uh, we, we know that from the time of uh, Kiddushin, so she's already designated to be his wife eventually, but they're not yet married. Uh, so the marriage happens in a number of steps, and which step is the mo is more important for which law? Uh, so as long as she's living in her father's house, usually when they were during Kiddushin, she's living in her father's house, so she's still under her father's domain for most things. Um, and then there's going to be some kind of official handoff where she is taken from her father's house and brought to the husband or to the husband's house or to messengers of the husband of some sort. And then there's going to be the chuppah ceremony and eventually they're going to consummate. And so each of these are different stages of the nisu'in. So this Mishnah teaches that she remains in the father's domain authority until she enters the domain of Haba'al Lenisu'in, until the marriage. There are other versions of this that say Lechupa. Um, uh, so that would define it uh, even better as chuppah. And actually this Mishnah itself is quoted in a few lines saying chuppah here rather than baal, uh, la ba'al lenisu'in. Okay, now, masada av l'shiduchei ha'ba'al harehi b'reshut ha'ba'al. Now, a first step that is still an important step is if the father hands off the daughter to the messengers of the husband. They may live far away. And so the husband says, okay, I'm ready for, the, for, for marriage. And so he, he, he doesn't want to go all the way. He sends a messenger on his behalf as an agent to the, to, to the father. And the father says, here you go. I hand off my daughter. Right? This is kind of like in a modern uh, wedding ceremony when the bride marches down and then the husband goes and meets them, meets them halfway and the parents give over their daughter and they go ahead and now it, it, that's the official handoff. 
So the husband doesn't have to do it himself. He could send messengers to do that. So that becomes, she, be, she goes under the authority of the husband from that point. Now, what if there's a combination, both people, if the father went along with the messengers of the husband. So now they're all walking together back to the husband's house, but the father's also with them. So is she under the father's uh, 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 jurisdiction or under the messengers of the husband? or the messengers of the father go with the messengers of the husband. So now since she's being accompanied by both, uh, it's not clear what it is. So she remains under the father's jurisdiction. She only uh, gets the transfer, only takes effect when the father or his messengers stop. They go back home and when she's exclusively um, under the authority of the husband or the husband's messengers, that's, that's when the transfer happens. If the messengers of the father give her over to the messengers of the husband, so even though the father and the husband are not even around, that also does transfer the authority uh, to the husband. Okay, so now we start off, we started the Mishnah with saying the words, she is always under the uh, authority of the father. Some seems to sounds like it's including some kind of case that we might not have thought of beforehand. So my leolam la la pukem mishnadi shona ditnan higia zeman velo nisu achlot michelo vechlot bitruma kamashmalan leolam. There is a mishnah that we're going to see soon on fifty seven a. That says, if the time came and they still did not get married, generally they would do Kiddushin at some point, and then perhaps up to a year later, they would do Nisuin. So what if the time of Nisuin came and he, the husband is supposed to bring her in uh, and start paying for all of her needs, um, but they didn't get married for some reason. Uh, the husband had a, a business trip, uh, he had to go and he couldn't do it. Even though he didn't do Nisuin, since the time came, he now starts his responsibility and has to pay for her food. So she eats from him. And she can even eat Tirumah. So according to the, that Mishnah, she, can, she eats everything, even Tirumah. So our Mishnah is coming to say, that was the earlier law, but it's not the Halakha. Kamashmalan le'olam, le'olam here means she remains under her father's authority always until she actually enters the wedding canopy, and therefore she will not be able to eat tirumah in the meantime, even though the time came and he has now financial responsibility, but you can't tell me that she's going to eat tirumah when she's in her father's house, before she actually goes into her husband's house, assuming that she is a Bat Yisrael marrying a Kohen. Now, Masada av l'shluche ha-ba'al, harehi b'rshut ha-ba'al. Amar av mesirata lakol hotzmi terumah. So when we say that the father delivered her into the, the, the messengers of the husband, now she goes into the husband's authority. For what laws does this, is this true? Is this for everything or only for some things? So Rav says it's for everything except for 
the eating of Tirumah because she the, the wedding didn't happen yet, so she's not fully married, and so she cannot yet eat Tirumah. The reasoning uh, seems to be that uh, since they didn't have the wedding canopy and consummate the marriage yet, we're always afraid that during the consummation of the marriage, he may see some blemish on her skin or something and say, oh, you didn't, you didn't tell me about that. This whole marriage is off. And then retroactively, had, if she had been eating Tiruma before the wedding, uh, that the, since the wedding is retroactively annulled, that would be in prohibition. So therefore we say, you know what, hold off on eating Tirumah. We want to make sure that the wedding is really going to stick, that it's not a Mekach Ta'ut, and, uh, and uh, so only from the consummation and on, according to Rav, that's when you can start eating Tirumah. Okay, that's one opinion. Rav says, once the messenger, once the husband hands off his daughter to the messengers of the husband, that's it, she's already in, in the husband's domain, and even for the law of Tirumah, uh, she can start eating. Uh, Rabbaseh's reasoning would be that while she's in her father's house, we don't want her to eat tirumah because um, uh, if she does, she's eating tirumah there, she's going to be having lunch in the father's house, uh, which is tirumah food, and even if technically she can eat it, but there's people around who are going to say, oh, that looks good, and they'll start having it, but they are not kohanim. And uh, so therefore, while she's in her father's house, no. But once she's transferred into the domain of the husband, even if it's not physically in the house, but just under the messengers, then we don't have to worry about that. And that is sufficient. Now she can start eating tiruma. Now we have a challenge to Rav who says basically the handoff is sufficient for everything, even tiruma. We know the question was asked to Rav It's not clear if it was Rav Huna or Chia, the son of Rav, who asked the question. And the question is, The Mishnah, the opening of our Mishnah says, she is always, she remains under the authority of the father until she enters Chupa. You see that the language that is quoting here is different from our version of the Mishnah that said, Here it says, um, okay, so um, assuming that Chupa is, well, is at least uh, the version that Rav Huna or Chiyah had, um, and a, a couple of manuscripts do have the word chupa even in the Mishnah. Anyway, his point is that the uh, transfer does not happen, the full transfer to the husband does not happen until the chupa, which means the wedding ceremony, and not beforehand when they just pass off to uh, the, the wife to the messengers. So this is a challenge to Rav Aseh who says that the transfer is sufficient for all matters of authority and the husband is full authority even for Tirumah. Hold on, here it says Chupah. Um, Amalehu Rav, now Rav says to the questioners who was either Rav Huna, his student, or Chia, his son, uh, chastises them about this question. It says, Didn't I always tell you, don't follow something that can be interpreted in an opposite manner. Don't ask a question from an ambiguous source. And that's exactly what you did here. Because Rav could give you a simple answer. He can say the word is kind of ambiguous, even though it technically means the wedding canopy 
canopy, which sounds like the wedding ceremony itself. Um, but he could tell you that when we say entering the chuppah, it means not literally, physically, the actual walking into the wedding canopy, which in those days might be the, 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 the wedding house uh, that are built for the chatan and kala, where they'll, they'll, they'll stay for a while. Um, but it could be any the base. It could be any transfer. So therefore, even the transfer from the father or his messengers to the husband or his messengers, he would also Ravesek would also call that chupa, and therefore say yes, she remains under the authority of the father until chupa equals the transfer. Um, so this is really important because I mean we're dealing with different uh, stages, but the basic idea of Nisuin fundamentally is the she's leaving her father's domain and entering the husband's domain, and that could be done by this kind of transfer of custody or a symbolic hut or an actual house um, that they go and live in. All right. So all that was a couple opinions so far. Now we can have more opinions. The transfer from his message from the husband's message from the father to the husband's messengers or him he himself that affects Yerusha. That once the uh, husband or, or his messengers, we'll just call it the transfer, uh, happen, then the husband can, if she dies from that point forward, the husband inherits whatever uh, she has. Um, that, uh, or whatever her property she has, whatever she brings into the marriage. So Shemuel seems to be giving um, uh, this transfer less status. Uh, it's not going to be for teruma, not going to be for other matters. It sounds like it's just for inheritance. Resh Lakish Amar Lichtubata. Kitubata Maihi. Resh is for Kituba. Now we ask, Kituba includes a lot of things. What part of the Kituba does the transfer effectuate? If he means the inheritance, that part of the Kitubah that says that she will inherit, that he, the husband, will inherit her, um, that's what Shemuel already said. So then it would be the same thing. Why would he have to say, so just say Yerusha? So, Ravina says, the transfer is sufficient on a very low level. This transfer only will affect her in a next marriage. Um, if she divorces or is widowed in, from this guy, and she goes and marries a second guy later on, will she be considered a betula or almana? Well, technically, she was only transferred to the messengers. There was no chupa yet. There was no bi'ah, certainly. So she does still have bitulim. So therefore, you might think that she would deserve 200 in her next marriage. Uh, therefore, uh, Ravina is explaining, Rashakisha is saying, no, because the transfer happened, she's called nesua, and therefore she will be treated like an almana uh, in, the, in the next marriage. So that for the next marriage, even though physically she has betulim, because she was, because the transfer happened, that's sufficient to call her already previously married and therefore deserves only 100. Um, okay, so according to Resh Lakish, it sounds like the transfer affects even less than all the other opinions above. Rabbi Yochanan and Rabbi Hanina Damret Arvayu Mesirata Lakol Afte Teruma Rabbi Yochanan and Hanina in Eretz Yisrael they both say that the transfer effectuates a full marriage all obligations and all rights even that she can eat Teruma this would agree with Rav Aseh that we saw um, uh, at first. Alright, now we're going to have a challenge to 
all or most of these opinions. Metibeh. This is a Tosefta. It's a, uh, that's pretty long. The next three paragraphs. If the father goes with the messengers of the husband, or the messengers of the father with the messengers of the husband, so now they're all together, so she's never quite alone with the messengers of the husband, yet the father or his, or his messengers are still with her, so she didn't leave her father's domain yet. Or they're walking on the way, the husband and the the the, the husband and the wife, the future husband and wife, and uh, they stop off on the way. Right, he went to pick her up, and they stop off on the on the way, I guess, to his house, and they stay in a courtyard that's owned by her. Uh, then they're going to sleep there for the night. Now, since it's owned by her, that will not affect uh, Kiddushin. We're going to contrast that with the next line where it's owned by him. If he owns the, 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 the house where they're going to stay the night, then that is Nisuin. Um, if they have in mind that that will be for Nisuin. But because she owns it, so then when they go in, we assume that they're going in just to rest for a while until they continue their journey. But the fact that they're resting in the same space does not mean that they intend to get married. So therefore, in all these cases, even though the kituba, this is referring to the dowry, the things that the father of the bride gives to the couple, even if that all that all stuff, the furniture, bed sheets and things, are already in the husband's house, physically they're there, but since the transfer was not effectuated, if she dies in the meantime, her father will inherit all that, gets the dairy back, gets whatever she, whatever property she had, gets back. Because um, her, he or his messengers were still with them the whole time, even if they stayed over in a place together, it was her, she owned the place, That none of that is called a transfer, there's no nisuin that happened. Second paragraph, If the father did give her uh, over to the messengers of the husband, or his messengers gave her over to the messengers of the husband, and they went back home, the, her, he or his messengers, the fathers, went back home, and now she's alone, she's exclusively with he or his, the husband's messengers, that's a transfer. Or they're going on the way and they go on a rest and he has a courtyard that he owns, the husband owns, and they, and they rest there and they go there for the purpose of Nisuin. Well, that itself is a transfer because now they are staying together in his domain. That's a definition of Nisuin. In this case, even if the physical dowry is still in her father's house, all that stuff, all the swanny stuff is still with him. Nevertheless, at that point when she dies, transfer happened, that is sufficient nisuin for inheritance, and therefore the husband can go pick up, even after the, the wife's death, can go pick up all that stuff from her, his, her father's house. When is this true that the husband can inherit? When is this true? When do we say that the husband has a right? Um, in what case do we say that the nisuin happened, the transfer is effective? Only for inheritance. 
אבל לתרומה אין אישה אוכלת בתרומה עד שתיכנס לחופה. But regarding eating תרומה, no, that does not effectuate until the actual wedding ceremony, and that's the full, full nisuin that you need for, for um, uh, eating of תרומה. Okay, that's the end of the Tosefta. The Gemara says, תיופתא דקולהו תיופתא. This uh, Tosefta goes against all of the Amoraim that we saw before, uh, because it's kind of in between, yes, yeah, for Yerushah, but not for Tirumah. Now, actually, if you look carefully, it's not really so clear, because it says, yes, Tirumah, uh, yes, for Yerushah, not for Tirumah, but it doesn't really say anything about the other, uh, uh, other aspects um, uh, of, uh, of, uh, uh, of her right, his rights over her that are not mentioned here, that were mentioned above. And so it's not really clear if it's rejecting all the opinions above. According to Rashi, this Tosefta does fit with Shemuel's opinion above. Uh, right, remember Shemuel said for Yerusha, yes, for Yerusha, and not for Teruma. So it could fit with Shemuel. So maybe when it says uh, that the Tiyuftab, all of them, it doesn't mean literally it rejects everybody, but it rejects most of the opinions above. Certainly it will reject Rav Aseh and Biochanan and Bichanina, because they say that the transfer affects even Teruma. And here it says for sure not Teruma. So they're, they're probably the main. Uh, a challenge is to them, or who were just who were just mentioned right above it. Okay, ha gufa kashya. We ask um, about this uh, this within the Tosefta. We seem to have an internal contradiction. Amat nichnesa imo lalin tamade lalin hasetama leshem nisuin. In the first paragraph, if they go to her courtyard for the purpose just of resting, um, and not nisuin. So I mean, the, so they're not. There's no transfer. It sounds like the reason why there's no transfer there, uh, that's not considered a nisuin, is because they had explicitly said we're going to go here just to rest, not for marriage. Therefore, we can infer hasitama. If they didn't say anything, then uh, and they went to her courtyard, uh, then we assume that it would be for marriage. But in the Sefa, in the next case, if they go to his courtyard and they specify this will be for Nisuin, then they are married. But if they don't specify anything, then we would assume that it's only lodging. So now which one is it? If you don't specify and the husband and wife go into, uh, the fiancés go into a place uh, and uh, are, are there together, do we assume that without, if we don't specify, is that just for resting or, for, or is it for nisuin? And the answer is Amadav Asheh, Sitame, Sitame Ketane. Both of them are actually Stam, uh, that they didn't specify anything. And the rest of the words are just explaining what we assume if they don't specify anything. Stam Dalalin, if it's her courtyard and they don't specify anything, then we assume they're just resting. It's not for nisuin. Unless they specify and say, you know what, this is we're doing this for Nisuin. But if he owns the courtyard and they don't say anything, then we assume it's Nisuin, unless they specifically say, listen, we're going to sleep here together in my courtyard, but we don't intend for this to be a marriage ceremony. This is only for resting. We're going to save uh, that for another time. 
Now we have one more halacha regarding this transferring. If this transfer happened from the father to the messengers of the husband, and while after that time, before the actual wedding uh, ceremony, she goes and uh, sleeps with someone else and is unfaithful, she gets chenek. Chenek is the normal um, punishment for adultery after Nisuin. So the point is that after that transfer, she's considered uh, enough like Nisuin that she would get Chenek and not Sekila, which would be the usual punishment for a uh, for an Arusa. So she's no longer Arusa, she becomes a Nisua. How do you know this? In the law of Mosi Shemra, it says, we stone her because she did this bad thing that she went astray in her father's house, which means you, oh, she only gets stoning if she's in her father's house. That excludes but if the father already gave her over and transferred her to the messengers of the husband, then she's not in her father's house anymore, so she can't get stoning. Therefore, she already gets uh, strangulation. Now, says, hold on, I know it's excluding something, but why are you jumping all the way back to the point of transfer? There's another milestone that happens in between, and that is after the wedding canopy, but before the consummation of the of the marriage through bi'ah. So there also, the, the bi'ah is the final 100% marriage. Um, but before that, with just the wedding canopy, that is already a step before. Maybe it's excluding, uh, coming to exclude that. That is after the, after the canopy, then she gets chenik. But maybe before the canopy, between even after the transfer, it would still be sikila. So how do you know? Amarava, amali, ami, chupa behejaketiba. says, no, no, we don't need, the, we wouldn't need this pasuk. It's not bedavia to teach me after chupa. Because after chupa, I have another explicit source that tells me after chupa, she is fully married and no, no longer would get sikila like a na'ara. Because it says, This is in the, the law of na'ara mo'rasa, the one after Masih Shemra. Uh, Pasuk says, if she is a na'ara, she has to be, uh, 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 you know, between 12 and 12 and a half, betula, and she has to be mo'rasa. These three words each come to exclude something. Na'ara velo bogeret. Na'ara and not more than 12 and a half. Once she's 12 and a half, she would get Hainik and she cheats. She gets Hainik and not Tikila anymore. Betula velo Beola. Betula comes to say she still has her Betulim. She's virgin. Not Beola if she already had Bia. Meorasa velo Nisua. Meorasa means she's in the Erusian period and before, and she's not fully married. Now, my Nisua, what does it mean, Nisua? Ilema Nisua Mamash. If Nisua means actual Bia, and only from that point on, she goes from Sikilaf to Chenek. Hainu betula velo beola. Well, then the sua would be the same as the previous one. Betula velo beola. That's all that already would ex- already tell us that at the point of bi'ah, she leaves the sikila punishment and would enter the chenek punishment. So I already know that. What is nesu'ah coming to add? Rather, the word nesu'ah must be adding the case where she had chupa, they did the wedding ceremony, but they didn't yet consummate with bi'ah. Even then, 
she is no law she is no longer under the law of Naadama Orasa and no longer would be Sikila. So therefore I know that that milestone is already covered. And so this Pasuk that says he's not Betaviha is coming to add yet something else that only when she is in her father's home would she get Sikila. So once the transfer happens, that she's no longer in her father's home, and the punishment at that point on would be Hanek. Baruch Adonai Leolam, Amen Ve Amen.